Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy. I'm your host, Hannah Bestwick, and today we've got another special episode. I'm here with Kate Marks. Now, Kate is a gender and American LGBTQ plus historian based in Cambridge, UK. She has researched niche history of queer publications in the US, uh, the history of lesbian pulp fiction and the rise and fall of Lesbian Tired magazine of Los Angeles. She'll soon be moving on to do a PhD in Leeds Beckett University to continue her research, was the captain of the varsity rugby team and companion to the one-time famous pooch, Monty, who shot to Twitter stardom when he featured on a brew dog can. Hello, Kate. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Who did you say um, retweeted the picture of your dog again? That was uh, Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais. He's a big supporter of the uh, Brewdog charity beer. Goodness me. Can with you. So the dog was on the can? Well, we think he was. We never actually found one with him on it. Okay, but okay. But had a full range with all different dogs from this charity. Oh um, my God, that's charity, so cute. All Dogs Matter, little shout out to them. Um, and yeah, they had a whole range of dogs featuring on these different cans. And Oh my God, that's so yeah. sweet. Is Monty a good boy? He's the best boy. Of course he's the best boy. The best boy. Of course he's the best <laughs> yeah. boy. Um, so actually today you're going to be talking to me about uh, about the magazine Lesbian Tide, um, which I... Is it Lesbian Tide or is it just called Tide? The Lesbian Tide. The yeah. Lesbian Tide, because I looked it up because um, I was trying to work out where it's from um, so I could write my little intro. I got this... Um, uh, this image came up of a kind of yellowed... Uh, front of a magazine with a short-haired woman on the front uh, just said lesbian tide with all these bits of writing on so like where did it all start yeah so actually just touching on what you're saying there the actual fact they had lesbian written on the cover right it was the first uh newspaper or magazine ever in america to feature the word lesbian oh my god you know in the title at all or just yep yeah the title on the cover um so yeah started as quite groundbreaking from from the off in that sense um, pretty controversial as well. Yeah, I was going to say um, it must have raised some like heckles, hackles, hackles. Yeah, raised some hackles. Yeah, I think throughout the ten-year uh, period that the magazine existed as well, there was this continuous undercurrent of debate over whether they should take it off the front of the cover. Front, front of the cover. Thought they might get a few more readers if they appeared uh, slightly less controversial, but they never did remove it. I think. In fact, I think they wrote one edition that didn't have lesbian written in the title. It didn't go down with the readers. No, lesbians back in. Lesbian yeah. back in. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was founded by an activist. Um, she was a lesbian feminist activist, Jean Cordova, um, who's pretty famous in in the kind of lesbian feminist circles in America. Yeah. Um, and she founded it in 1971. Um, so she was a journalist prior to that and had written for a couple of other gay publications, um, like The Advocate and a few other things. But she wanted to combine her journalistic ambitions with her kind of lesbian feminist principles into one melting pot and she made or began the kind of history of the lesbian tide she wanted to use the principles of collectivity in the way that they ran things as opposed to the way that they were running other journals which were quite capitalist ultimately quite profit making um so where did the name tide come from i don't know so they never really kind of touch on that i think it's meant to be kind of the ebbs and the flows the idea of tide and like how things can come and go and come Mm. and go but no i have no i have no uh, specific kind of info on that one um but i guess the word tide to me when i was researching it was a really good kind of metaphor for thinking about the way the magazine kind of came and went and had its high times and its low times and um yeah, in conducting the research, I kind of focused on those, the different periods within its history in that way. Um, That's really cool, yeah. So it kind of 
it was a successor to some other journals in America at the time that tried to do similar things. Um, so there was quite a famous one, um, The Ladder, which came out of an organisation called The Daughters of Bolitis, which was Whoa. one of the first feminist, uh, well, feminist organisations, but lesbian organisations for women in, in, in America more generally. The Daughters of... of daughters what? of Bolitis. Bolitis, Bolitis. So they had what they called chapters mm -hmm. all around... Uh, the US. One of them was in, in Los Angeles, yeah. um, where Jean was based. Um, but they were organisations that intended to kind of provide some kind of community um, mm. and brought people together and under specifically their lesbian. banners. Specifically lesbians, yeah. Was it kind of like a structure like uh, chapter houses? Is that a kind of fraternity or like a sorority sort of structure or like the Masons? Yeah, that kind of vibe, but with less of a like actual uh, physical infrastructure oh, more of okay. a kind of like imagined community-esque yeah, yeah. situation um but yeah so the lesbian tide magazine sprung out of the newsletter of one of these daughters yeah. of bolitis cool. uh chapters and they kind of took it over and made it their own that's really fucking cool so kind of the organization as a whole started as a group of mates so they yeah. were a bunch of their friends um who all kind of wanted to produce this uh, community kind of based journal um, and throughout the time of its existence they played really close attention to the emotional health of the group and like yeah. all of their mental health was like as much of a priority as the financial health of the magazine quite uh so all the writers were like a community all looking after each other yeah That's i think really that nice. was the intention yeah um as i say it was a group of friends as well so i guess they had that to kind of try and maintain to um, but oh, as yeah, maybe yeah, I'll mention yeah. later, they didn't quite manage that at times and it all became <laughs> a little bit fraught um, with kind of drama. But of yeah, makes for a more interesting history for us to research. Absolutely. Um, most of the people that were involved were actually volunteers, yeah. so very few of them were actually paid. Um, a colossal amount of time that went in mm. as um, when you said you Googled some of, the, some of the pictures of it, you can see from the journals themselves, they were done to a hugely professional standard yeah, um, yeah. and for yeah a it group wasn't of volunteers just thrown together was it it was no. like a, a real i'm gonna say passion project because that's how, what it feels like yeah definitely i think that's definitely how it started for jean as well yeah um i think as it went on i think the commercial viability became quite a uh kind of enduring thorn in the kind of growth mm. of the the journal as a whole and, and I bet that can be like yeah. quite a sore point for a lot of people doing creative endeavors is like ultimately you do need money yep. to keep doing these things but when you start doing things specifically for money that can take so much of the joy out of it yeah. but it's it's such a, a, a not a fight it's just very fraught between those two different points that are pulling you apart yeah definitely yeah. and I think how much you compromise on your principles in order to gain readership as well yeah so like we said about the having the title and having the word lesbian well, on I mean it. yeah it's so much more obvious if you're carrying around a magazine that says <laughs> lesbian tide on it compared to if you just have a magazine called tide like you have to be comfortable with purchasing a magazine that has lesbian in the title exactly yeah. and a lot of people wouldn't have been out at the time yeah right? exactly so I think that's something that throughout the research I had to try and remember as well was that you're talking about a climate in the 1970s, 1980s in which uh, there's like still systemic oppression of lesbian identity mm. and people wouldn't be comfortable necessarily being out or yeah. Um, being yeah seen reading that literature. Um, but in another breath, I think for a lot of women having the word lesbian as a title provided kind of a sense of hope and a sense mm. of... Um, public identity in a way yeah. that they'd never seen before. Um, as you said, 
done a little bit of research on Pulp Fiction novels and that was kind of a precursor as well. So they were a little bit earlier, so that was kind of 1950s. But again, it was that sense of not really wanting to carry around something that necessarily gave away your identity, but equally loving having something that began to show you. Um, Yeah, like reflected you and also, you know, if you're also reading lesbian Pulp Fiction, you might identify someone else who has it. You know, if you're in the know, you're in the know. Yeah. Um, But if you're not, then it just goes over your head, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think with all of these kind of like paper-based forms of identifying yourself, there's there's like an unseen uh, circulation. So for historians, it's really hard to track how many readers there really were because Mm. we know how many people may have bought it or we know how many people might have bought a Pulp Fiction novel, but we don't know how many people passed that on to someone else by, you know leaving it on the bus and someone else picking it up yeah. or Giving passed it, it around to their friends yeah, yeah, yeah. or um, like left it, you know, happened to be sat on the coffee table and they picked it up or that kind of thing. And we don't actually know how much of the readership sort of like an unseen um, so interesting. kind of yeah. population, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I think in guessing at all of the readership figures for all of these things, we always guess like a little bit higher than they maybe officially were because... Yeah. Yeah, that under kind of unseen think, trend. Is it like, you know, you guess one one and a half times the amount sold or like one and a quarter or like how many more do you reckon? I don't know. I, in some ways I wouldn't like to say because okay. um, it's like quite, uh, I don't know. It's it quite feels like guesswork. It feels yeah, speculative. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, like I would guess that for every reader there was maybe another person at least picking up that magazine. Really, yeah. If you think about like even in today's society, like when we buy a book, for example, like how many of your mates do you lend that to? Like yeah. you're going to lend it to someone else if you think it's a good book yeah. or you're going to post a review of it or you're going to tell someone about it at the very least yeah. so that even if they're not reading it themselves, they might be accessing some of that content just via yeah, word of mouth. That's such and, a good point. Um, like um, people who take the time to write reviews on Goodreads. Yeah. You know, like yeah. <laughs> those people are heroes. Yeah. Um, um, but oh yeah, I was com- I was comparing it in my head to like just sharing Netflix logins, and I know yes, that's like yeah. not the same. But if you think about it, like how many people have access to one login? Yeah. And then if you're in a community already, you've got a few close friends. One of you buys the magazine, then you all share it, so you don't have to all go into the same shop and buy the magazine. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that definitely was the case. A bit of my research that I actually did prior to this project was looking at uh, feminist bookstores in America. Oh, cool. And that kind of um, sharing of knowledge was a massive part of what made feminist bookstores so great Mm. because people would go in and read something and then pass it on to the next person or um, kind of like talk about it or, yeah, share that knowledge in ways that wasn't necessarily conventional Um, and not having to pay for it. I think that that financial constraint, as you say, is quite a massive thing. Early 70s, women still couldn't open bank accounts without a husband. Yes. And so, like, you're not really financially independent. And also, you don't want to have suspicious lesbian purchases on, yep. your, like, on your checkbook being like, one lesbian tie, please? <laughs> yes. God. It's funny you say it, actually. So, in the, in the kind of research ba- uh, basis for this project, I conducted some oral history interviews with some of the people that had worked on the tide, which was awesome and very cool and loved doing yeah, it yeah I bet but one of them actually said to me she was like I bet you haven't thought about how we funded this yeah and I was like I kind of thought about it like I knew you wouldn't really have I loads knew, of I money. Knew be money but I didn't really I hadn't really thought about it and she was like none of us could write a check so how did we pay the printers I was like really good point yeah I don't know and like she went on to kind of talk about the how, how they'd kind of got around these issues and things it wasn't really any one specific answer but 
that kind of realization that she was like in your life you don't even have to think about those things but at the time creating a journal was even more than just making a journal mm. it was getting around these financial barriers and legal barriers and yeah. all of those things that yeah incredible we, I just hadn't even thought about <laughs> yeah yeah and um, it speaks volumes as to like the dedication as well is that like it's m- so much more than just giving all your free time it's like finding finding ways around very real barriers to even getting money yeah and money is everything yeah 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 no I think and like just touching on that as well was kind of premises and where do you print things and which printers do you approach to print mm, lesbian content be, yeah. or do you try and train up women themselves to who are part of your group to print that content Gosh, for you yeah. which they did up to a point and they were really um kind of strong on trying to upskill people and um increase kind of accessibility to the publishing and journalistic kind of industries but there is a limit to how much you can do yourself if you're trying to increase your circulation um and i think they did they did hit up against a few barriers at times um jean cordova actually talks about this in her book she has an amazing book called when we were outlaws and um she talks about these yeah very cool and she talks about um a couple of times when she had to go to the printers and march in there and like sort things out because they refused to print some of the issues they had one where the cover image was two women kissing and it got re- they refused to print it oh and God. but they'd already paid the advance on it um yeah and like various times like that where they came against as you say very real barriers that we as researchers now need to kind of remember that the context of that because yeah. otherwise it's hard to understand yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely so i kind of in thinking about this podcast and like thinking about how what I was kind of going to try yeah, yeah. and share with you, um, I kind of picked out three key moments from the research that I thought were really cool. Yeah. Um, so the tide actually ran from 1971 to 1980. Yeah. And at various points in that time, they had real high points where the circulation was going really well and they hosted conferences or they had some low points where mm. everyone fell out or or people left and they were left with a really small staff or really difficult financial times where they mm. couldn't print any pictures or they could had to print it in black and white yeah, and, yeah. or one time when they had too many marches so they had to actually not print an issue that month because they were too busy doing all the other amazing things that they were doing yeah um so the first one i kind of thought was interesting was the actual founding of the the tide as we've mentioned, they were founded out of the Daughters of Bolitis, mm-hmm. which was an interesting organisation in itself um, for because it, it had been around quite a while. Um, and I think Jean Cordova and a number of her friends felt that they were um, stuck in the past a little bit. The and Daughters. Yes, yeah. the Daughters of Bolitis, yeah, stuck in the past a little bit and not really moving with the like kind of current trends within feminism. I think a lot of those Daughters of Bolitis people probably felt like Jean was too modern for mm. them. Um, so Jean was kind of involved in the lesbian feminist circles um, and pushing pushing for the uh, newsletter to be slightly more lesbian feminist in its political outlook. Yeah. Um, and in the end, she kind of took it solo and got yeah. pushed out of the Daughters of Bolitis. Perhaps maybe you could say she, she pushed herself out and, and took it with her. But either way, they moved to um, align with a new group of sort of more political lesbian feminists mm. um, and evolved the magazine into the product that we could see as the lesbian tide. In doing so, they developed a kind of working collective as a structure, so based on more feminist principles of all sharing 
the kind of management rather than having a hierarchical structure okay. which you would expect in most like conventional business in this kind of part of the files and documents that we have they have some amazing hand-drawn diagrams where they've drawn like in pen you can see it and you can see where they've crossed things out where they had all the different structures as like almost like family tree style yeah, yeah. every part department sitting next to each other and then they had like one sitting on top and then it's been crossed out and like where they've tried to fit it into kind of as I say, a non-hierarchical thing that's basically just a really, really long, long line, line across <laughs> the page of departments all sitting at the same level. Oh my gosh. Um, but, so you can see that there's a really strong intention there to yeah. do the right thing. Yeah. Um, but despite that, even in those early diagrams, there is a committee that sits above all the other departments. And I think, unfortunately, that nod to a hierarchical structure kind of plagued the magazine throughout its, ex- its existence mm. and I think Jean herself she was quite a, a confident character yeah. from what all my interviewees sort of uh, suggested and having her sitting at the very top of that structure I think suggested that there would be elements of hierarchical kind of control from mm. her and others um, from the very start um, but I think they had a they were very aspirational and I kind of admire that sense of kind of wanting to do something amazing and to be kind of pioneers and mm. like a unique voice of kind of hope. Yeah. But yeah, even in those early stages you could start to see some things which might some, go some awry. Tension. Yeah. Well, I was yeah, I was thinking about that because Jean wasn't te- wasn't like officially in charge. No. So they were all trying to do it at once. I don't know if you've ever done like a group project, mm. but pe- I find that a lot of people will sit around and have all the amazing ideas in the world, but won't be able to do anything until someone tells them to. Mm. That's something mm. I find quite difficult. It's like you have to be like, well, someone's got to someone's got to say do this by then, otherwise, like it's going to be deadline by committee and then like yep. item by committee, each individual thing, and it's going to be very difficult. So at the very least, you kind of have to have someone who's the bad guy. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And I think, like we said before, a lot of these people were volunteers. So I think having to have a hundred percent consensus mm. on every single decision that you make made for a really, really time consuming process. Yeah. I think it made everyone feel like they had a massive buy in. And yeah. I think yeah, yeah. that kind of collective process made everyone feel like they could contribute. They had a stake. Um, it was a space for everyone. It was mm-hmm. very inclusive, but the time consuming element and like how the long, pressure on people. How long did it, t- like how often was it published? So it was pub- published monthly okay. for the majority of its 10 years. Okay. But there were times where they didn't publish. Um, so like it, with the marches? Yeah, so like with the marches and there was a few times where there was just too much conflict and okay. they couldn't publish or where, yeah, finance got in the way, or okay. various things. So yeah. there are gaps within the publication, but for the majority of the time it was So they still monthly. managed a monthly thing, despite pretty how long much. it took to make everything happen. Yeah, yeah. pretty much, which still was very good. impressive. Yeah. Yeah, very impressive. And, like, so they've all got some amazing stories around, like, rushing to the typesetters, <laughs> or, like, where things slipped through the net, and, like, things didn't get printed, or, like, someone's article didn't get approved in time, oh or gosh. whatever. But yeah, all in all, an incredible feat to actually publish something that regularly. Yeah, pretty impressive. So like we said, sometimes where they didn't manage to publish, um, one of those times came off the back of what is quite a um, pivotal moment within um, sort of feminist and also trans-American history. 
Um, so this was in 1973, and the Lesbian Tide were the main organisers of a conference called the West Coast Lesbian Conference. Okay. This is one of my favourite bits of this history because I think it's super interesting yeah. how it inflects with um, like trans history, feminist history, lesbian history, and the tide as an organisation more generally. So I kind of noticed this period of history actually through the work of a really incredible historian called Susan Stryker. If you've never heard of her, you should all look her up because she's amazing and she writes some really interesting stuff about trans history. Um, but she calls this conference like a major inflection point in US transgender history. So I was like, ooh, I should definitely look into yeah. that one a bit more, especially when I found out the Tide was so heavily involved. The conference kind of sought to bring together lesbian women from across the US in a way that hadn't ever been done before, mm. um, to unify them and to provide kind of a, a starting point for the foundation of this amazing lesbian community that mm -hmm. everyone mm -hmm. wanted. And so it became much bigger than they'd anticipated, I think. Although I think they'd always hoped it was going to be pretty big. Yeah. They had 1,500 women turn up. Wow. Uh, it was held at UCLA, so in, in LA, Gosh. the university. Um, people came from over 200 cities. Um, oh my God. 26 states. But one of my favorite things was that they wrote about how this woman hitchhiked over 3,000 miles to be <laughs> holy there. Holy shit. Yeah, holy shit, yeah. So people were pretty they invested. They were pretty into it. Um, but it sounds like it went pretty well from the start point, people were super excited to see so many lesbians all in one space, which again, I'm sure we can all relate to. Yes, yeah, be yeah, buzzing yeah. for that. The desire to um, find your people, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, for most people, it was the first time that they'd ever been in a yeah. space with that many people. I mean, yeah, someone like a safe space. Willing to hitchhike 3,000 miles, it obviously means a lot to you. Yeah, yeah. so they were all pretty excited. Um, Again, another favourite quote was this woman who was writing about it and she wrote like a journal of the event. She was like, it was a sea of lesbians, wall-to-wall -wall <laughs> lesbians. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. Wall-to-wall um, <laughs> -wall. -wall lesbians. All right, to the windows, um, to the walls, everywhere. Lesbians. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it became um, kind of fraught with less um, kind of... I'm, I'm, I hate to say less positive, but it became fraught... Um, as part of a kind of ideological conflict around the attendance of trans women. Okay. So trans women had had uh, there had been tensions within the feminist community around the place of trans women um, more generally, and I think it was starting to emerge as a more kind of debated topic. I think we can still relate to this with like the context in which we're living, where uh, trans women in feminist spaces is still terribly uh contested and i think like and very contentious yeah. very contentious and unfortunately so because it was an event that was built on the premise of unity and inclusion and it became in the collective memory one of division and um a start of quite a fiery debate um, yeah yeah that was unfortunate given that the principles of the event were were inclusivity um so it all kind of started because this performer, a trans woman called Beth Elliott, was invited to perform. And Beth Elliott had been involved in the feminist community more generally on the West Coast. And um, she performed kind of folk music. So they're like, yeah, come along, come and sing. Um, so that was the intention. However, a lot of people didn't like that she was taking up the space. Well, that's how they referred to it. Taking up the space that another performer could have been performing in that slot. Um, so it led to kind of 
what they called a riot. But I think really that was just a lot of people shouting at the stage. Um, So I think it took the Lesbian Tide organisers by surprise. I think they hadn't prepared themselves for this scale of kind of uproar. I I think they thought it would just be fine. Yeah. Um, I think they knew that there was, it was mildly contentious, but I think at that time the kind of trans debates were just beginning to kind of grow mm. in the States. I don't think it was necessarily fully developed yet. So I think people were learning as they went and I think there had been a lot of hope that it would kind of just be fine. Yeah, um, and I guess as well, like, um, because communication between towns, between groups as well would be quite limited. You don't know what the next town over, yeah. um, what conversations they're having yeah. And so you invite people from 200 different towns, cities, towns. Um, they all get together and they will all have wildly different perspectives where yeah. they've all been having their own little um, isolated pockets of uh, conversations come together and some people are going to clash. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I think, I think that's what happened, really. Um, so there was a group of women who had attended the conference who were called the Gutter Dyke Collective, and they had had a journal of their own. Um, I think it was called Dykes and Gorgons. It actually had a very <laughs> cool cover on one of their editions that had, like, Medusa with all her snakes coming out of her head nice. and stuff. But unfortunately, they were quite quite trans-exclusionary in right. their approach and um, didn't think that Beth Elliott should be performing, stirred up some of the crowd in support of their particular um, point of view and this led to um, her performance being stopped Um, but Jean Cordova took took the mic in kind of the moment when it all broke down Mm. and kind of said you know this is not what should be happening here we need to tomorrow at the conference we're gonna have a debate about this and we're gonna have a kind of a talk mm. um you don't yell pe- at people you have a talk yeah we have a talk um unfortunately people didn't want that either because the decision they wanted the decision to be made then and there i think those who were opposed wanted beth elliott to be you know thrown off the stage and not be allowed to take up that space Gosh. um so jean <laughs> being the kind of figure to try and lead to some dipl- like diplomatic resolution of the situation said like let's have a vote which like looking back on that now you you feel you know they shouldn't be voting on someone's right to perform yeah. however at the time it provided a bit of solution because mm-hmm. actually the consensus in favor of Beth Elliott was much greater yeah. than this one very vocal minority group who'd chosen to attend and yeah. caused quite a lot of chaos um and that is something that like we're we're struggling with a lot like even now and not just with with trans rights but but at the moment, particularly with trans rights, is that there feels like there's a, a minority that are very loud. Yes. And most, um, like, everyone else is is baffled by these people because it makes them sound like there's so many more yep. who are against. And then it's just not true. It's a minority who just, you know, making all the noise. Yeah, definitely. I think that was very much the situation at this event. And I think where you had a lot of women who hadn't even come across these debates or questions uh, yeah. before I think they didn't know where they sat on the debate yeah. um and I think yeah I think it, it caused a lot of confusion for people because they weren't being informed in the right way yeah. they were just having lots of things shouted all at once yeah and um, that's terrifying yeah so Jean Jean Cordova was always a very big advocate for inclusion of mm-hmm. all women um but obviously at, at that event, it just caused quite a lot of chaos. Yeah. And unfortunately, that has stuck in the enduring memory of the event. Um, it's a real shame. Yeah. And the event's been written about in history, um, not by many historians, because there's not many historians researching these things. But those that have have often written about it in a way that's like 
oh, aren't the feminists of the 1970s so trans-exclusionary? But forgetting, actually, like, the work of people like Jean Cordova to stand mm. up and say, like, well, let's vote on it, let's think about this, rather than um, just letting the trans-exclusionary rhetoric kind of permeate the whole event. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the reason why I'm such a passionate supporter of the historian Susan Stryker is because she actually says we need to look at this and, and rewrite this history. It needs to be reassessed. We need to mm. think about it. Um, and in kind of what I was trying to do, I think it's trying to write about it in a way which highlights the trans positivity that yeah. was there and the way that these women, they're not all trans exclusionary. They get roped in with that because that's the way in which 1970s feminism is kind of viewed. But actually, those at the Taj who weren't necessarily supportive, I think often that was coming from a place of just not understanding yet. Mm. And actually the Taj's principles of kind of inclusivity were the ones that I think did win that day. Yeah. Um, but get forgotten about in the kind of collective memory yeah. of those situations. Um, yeah, and it's it's important to still be able to kind of highlight that it wasn't just um, anti-trans rights, that there were people who were very pro, very supportive, very inclusionary, um, because otherwise you imagine that everyone in history was wrong and we've only just got the right idea now. Like the actual, the reality is that there's always been confusion about lots of things. Nobody ever knows what's going on. Yeah. You can't you can't assume now that we definitely have the right idea about anything either. Um, and I think as it gives us a, it gives a false sense of superiority in the now, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think, um, like, again, to kind of touching on a point that Susan Stryker talks about, she says like a lot for a lot of women, this conference was the first encounter with uh, like trans debates, trans topics, trans women. Yeah. And as you say, like these women didn't know yet. So to say that they were all wrong or that things weren't, weren't right, then I think it's it doesn't misrepresenting those women as well because they weren't given the chance to be right. Or mm. some of them weren't. I'm not, saying, yeah. I'm not saying they all were wrong, you know, all right, whatever. They weren't even given but, a chance to come to their own conclusion. Yeah, I think that's the thing. And events like that provided a platform, but it needed to be done in such a way that was like, you know, inclusive and it's yeah. to be honest, like it does sound like she handled it really well. Yeah, I think to go so. on stage and be like, don't don't do that. I think so. And yeah. I think there was so many other conflicts and controversies that kind of came up at the conference as any event bringing together, you know, 1,500 women, I can imagine anything, you know, you're going to get conflicts over some yeah. stuff. It wasn't just the kind of trans um, questions that were raised that caused controversy that, that weekend. Um, there was other things around childcare for the mothers who yeah. were attending the conference. There was things um, when a man stormed the conference to protest against their kind of right to be there, right to exist. Oh, um, yeah. Um, so it wasn't the only thing, but I think... Um, the enduring memory has very much framed it as like that was that was it that yeah. was that was what happened yeah um, which is um, a shame yeah and I, I spoke to I was talking to uh, Agnes Tollock um, on the last episode about queer joy and the importance of remembering like moments of queer joy and that not everything was awful for everyone all the time that actually there there would be moments of like um, real joy outside of this one horrible event and like yes it gets so much um attention because it was a big deal but actually there is all this other trans trans joy going on around it that is just as important to talk about and to remember that it's not 
it's not horrible all the time. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think when you look at some of the photos that they printed, they did some, a couple of special editions of the Tide with the photos and uh, kind of diaries and journals and mm. letters about the conference. And in those, actually, the events around... Um, Beth Elliott's performance yeah. um, weren't necessarily actually featuring as like the mainstay of those letters. Yeah. It's actually, um, you know, the wall to wall lesbians yeah. and the, the joy of all being together. And when they all sang at the end of the conference and yeah. marching in with their big banners that they remember and that mm. they write about. Um, the collective sense of community and, and yeah, belonging. And that know? positivity, as you say. But unfortunately, you you know, one controversy can kind of take away yeah. um, a lot of that. And I think in terms of the longevity after that for the Tide, it did leave a lasting mark. I think people were underprepared and hadn't expected the fervour of kind of feeling that came out, up about those things. Mm. Um, they were actually kind of slated for a bit after that and told that, you know, they hadn't really run the conference very well and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So they stood up for inclusivity, but it still... You know, there was still a lot of dissent. Um, yeah. And I think the kind of divisions that plague the feminist movement throughout history really came to a head there um, yeah. and caused them quite a lot of problems. So actually, going back to kind of the reason for coming onto this in the first place, they did suspend publication after that. Mm-hmm. And they took a period of, of time to um, kind of have a bit of a reset. Mm. Um, one of them actually said that they were going to go back into the womb um oh, cool so she was like we're gonna go back into the womb and come out with something better okay um <laughs> which sure. i quite enjoyed yeah um i thought you meant like in the way that people are like i wish the ground would swallow me up she was like she's i like, want to go, go back, back into the, the womb, womb. <laughs> i've had enough of this yeah so the tide was gonna go back to the womb yes. now and they're gonna come out with something better okay was the intention cool so that that was a particularly fraught period of the lesbian yeah, tides absolutely. history but one that i hadn't expected to come across when i started the research so when i did i was like this is really cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was one of my favourite bits That's to kind of that write about. That is really about. amazing. That's really um, cool. Yeah, so it was kind of cool. Um, so after they after they had this period of going back into the womb, they decided, and I think this is again like another of my favourite bits, they decided they would go to therapy, but as a collective. Okay. So they would all take, they would take the whole collective family to therapy. therapy. Like family therapy, but for the business. Yeah. So, yeah. That was in 1975. Um, so that was kind of halfway through the Tide's history. I can't imagine it, how it would work with that many people. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I think this do week they have actually many, is... many counsellors? Yeah, one just one. Just one. Very in-control counsellor. Yeah, just one very in-control. But at, at this point, I don't think... I think there was only about ten of them okay. on the collective. But still, ten people all at therapy at once. Yeah, sounds still intense. a very big family. Yeah. It, when I was thinking about this, actually, it made me laugh because this week is actually, like, I think it's Mental Health at Work week this okay, week. Okay, sure. So we've been doing, like, all these things at work around, like, writing on your post-it note, like, what makes you happy at work? And it just made me laugh because oh, I was great. like, let's all, go to, let's all go to therapy yeah. all together as a collective. That'd be interesting. That would be good. But one of, one of my favourite points from this time of the documents from when they okay. went to therapy was where they discussed what percentage of secrets they would tell each other. So this wasn't like business anymore. This was what percentage of their personal secrets would they tell each other? Um, One of them was only about 40%. So they were all a bit unhappy when she was like, I would only tell you 40% of my secrets. Yeah, Um, but she's just a mass murderer. That's the thing. She's like secretly killing on the side. Yeah. That's that's quite a lot of secrets, but you know, everyone has their... Some of them were reasons. some of them were really high. Some of them was like we'd trust you with like eighty percent of our secrets. But yeah, one of them forty. One of them's doing so. something. 
Um, who was that? Do you know? So I do. Um, it was a uh, part of a woman who was on the collective called Cindy. Okay. Cindy was only trust only trust them with forty percent. So of, do we know what else um, Cindy did in her life? I. I feel like I probably do have some understanding of what Cindy did with her life, but off the top of my head, I can't remember. Okay, because um, I, I just imagine... But we imagine, can speculate. <laughs> I, I wildly speculate that she had she was either dealing drugs on the side, mm. or she may have been a secret serial killer. Okay, mm. But Sorry, the other Cindy. 40% of her life was totally fine, so she could definitely oh, yeah, trust them Oh yeah, she was just them. like yeah. a person, and she was like, yeah. I'll just tell you about how I dress and things, yeah. and like my dog, yeah. but just not the killing and the drugs, so yeah. like, that's fine. Yeah. That's the other 60%. Yeah. Yeah. So... So yeah, they they went to counselling, which sounds interesting. Um, Did it work? Well, they had a new restructuring after. Yeah. Um, the new restructuring looked remarkably like the old restructuring, though I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> Flatline. Relatively, yes. But they did try and change things a bit, and um, one of the things they agreed on was the need to prevent personal re- relationships imposing upon work. Okay. So going back to like motivations for why people public. Uh, participated in the tide in the first place as volunteers one of the motivations did seem to be to find friends but also for relationships a dating pool. because yeah kind of i think because again if you think about the context there wasn't really many things that lesbian women could do to meet other lesbian women yeah. publicly and i think journals and like kind of media outlets really did provide an avenue for that um when there wasn't a lot else there was obviously the bar culture which was kind of running simultaneously and had for a long time been the sole place that you could really meet other yeah. other queer people. It doesn't people, work for everyone. But though. it doesn't work for everyone and definitely isn't the most inclusive or yeah. kind of accessible of spaces. Um, so I think, like, feminist bookstores was one, um, but journals and magazines was kind of another avenue that you could take that wasn't necessarily centred around alcohol mm. or kind of... Um, other things which weren't maybe necessarily accessible, as we yeah. said. Cruising was never really a thing for women. So. Not necess- not not in the same way, no. no. Um, no. And women also needed places that were safe, right? So, like, couldn't necessarily go to some of the bars or yeah. things that men might have found more accessible. Obviously, I'm sure there were plenty of women who did love those things, but for others, um, things like the collective could provide a real yeah. avenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it had caused... Some tension. So there was some some relationships. There was some there was some things going on. Okay. Um, I think for a while the magazine was based out of one of Jean's girlfriend's houses, okay. um, and then out of Jean's house um, herself. But I think there, yeah, as I say, there have there were various relationships sort of going on, which were beginning to influence decision making and like who would side with who if there was ever right, a, yes. a split vote and that sort of thing. So after the counselling, they had decided that they wouldn't let these relationships influence uh, their work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, quote from Jean was when she suggested that ultimately no one on the collective sleeps with each other. Um, what? That's actually documented. She said that. She said okay. that. Um, so no one on the collective sleeps with each other, basically, was what needed to happen. Fundamentally, it turned out to be slightly uh, hypocritical. Yeah, because did she um, then go back and accept me? She then did. Yeah. But I think it wasn't just her. And I think also to try and put, again, like we said, like the contextual slant on it, I think it was really, really hard for these women to meet other people. So you can really understand why it became an intense sort of space for them um, yeah. to develop those relationships. And I feel like if you put the rule down to be like, nobody sleeps with each other and everyone goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It makes people do it much more subtly. Mm. 
People people yep. become much slyer and less obvious with their sidings and things like that, you know? Like, people trying to have relationships at work where you don't just... You end up, like... Well, I presume. People end up just, like, <laughs> spending time... Uh, sorry, I remember I used to work for a company where the average age was about 24. Mm. A, a company of 1,000 people, so everyone was straight and boning each other. Um, but they would put in, like, loads of effort to make sure nobody knew mm. um, what was going on. And would purposefully, like, not have lunch mm. together or, like, mm. leave home at different times mm. so you didn't know they were arriving at work One together. One of those things where nobody knows, but everyone yeah. knows. It's like, everyone knows, but, like, I appreciate that you're trying to not let us know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that was probably what was going yeah. on at the Tide. Um, but as I said at the start, they were really um, kind of attuned to trying to ensure that everyone's emotional well-being and, like, health were at the forefront of what they were doing alongside economic viability. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the kind of kind of capitalist, capitalist journalistic businesses that ran similar kind of content to them were on a very, very different basis. Mm-hmm. I think they really did prioritise trying to make sure that people were happy and felt included and felt heard mm-hmm. in what they were doing. Um, so the intentions were really good, I think, in all of this restructuring. Yeah. Um, the very fact, like, they were all willing to go to counselling and giving that time to the business and to yeah. each other was pretty impressive. Um, but, yeah, mildly amusing as well, reading some of those sources, not going to lie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the fact they kept documents of all of these things is also kind of yeah. amazing because a lot of journals pretty ephemeral um and wouldn't have necessarily recorded all the stuff they did yeah the, like the committee meetings yeah like, we're not allowed to yeah. speak with each other anymore yeah Meeting the amount adjourned. of minutes they kept was wow insane a lot of them are handwritten some of them typed up um but they kept minutes of a lot of things which is obviously great as a historian yeah um but yeah kept minutes of everything every every decision that was made they pretty much documented and as I say, these things like the going to counselling as well were documented, yeah. which made for a pretty amazing record, to be honest. That is incredible. Um, yeah. I think a lot of that was down to Jean Cordova herself. I think she was a meticulous yeah. uh, record keeper. Mm. And throughout her work across many different kind of areas uh, of her life, she was very meticulous in keeping records. Um, and Did she have so, a particular reason for that? Or was she just a bit pedantic? Like, that was I just think, her thing. I think she did have a reason for it. I think she knew ultimately that like it was, important. it was really important to record particularly queer history, particularly lesbian history, mm. feminist history, because if she didn't record it, it wasn't going to get recorded. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think there was also an awareness on her part that she had documents that no one else had. Um, like a lot of the stuff from the Tide were in her personal folders. Um, so again, suggesting that she was pretty much running the show, yeah. undermining that kind of suggestion of collect or the aspiration of collectivity however also in terms of the tide and like its record now Mm. probably a really good thing because she actually kept meticulously yeah and i'm sure it made for like some kind of consistency and i bet people turned to her yeah when they wanted decisions made like i bet they did yeah 100 percent. what i i don't know if you're going to come on to this but like what ultimately brought it to a close yeah so i was just going to touch on on that actually so Jean Cordova herself, I think, began to feel that the tide wasn't political enough Mm. and wasn't really pushing the boundaries in the way that she wanted to push boundaries. I think they were struggling to maintain a readership. I think they had had the constant kind of uh, really loyal fans. They were struggling to attract new readers. um, 
I think she actually quote, I think she actually says at one point about LA being overtaken by lipstick lesbians, which was not what she identified as with her political beliefs, mm. mildly controversial in yeah, her yeah. kind of definitions of those things but I think she saw herself as a far more politicized activist version of lesbian identity Mm. and didn't necessarily align with the new ideas that were coming in at the start of the 1980s um, around lesbian identity Mm. Um, perhaps like younger women who had grown up with slightly more visibility than she had Um, and I think she wanted the tide to maintain its political edge and unfortunately they were losing readers, not yeah. gaining new ones. Um, they ran a survey in, I think it was 78, 1978, around what readers actually wanted. Um, and I think there was a bit of a push for less political stuff, more kind of lifestyle mm. or um, like more general articles. Um, yeah, yeah. And that wasn't really what Jean wanted to do, yeah. write and wanted to produce and be a part of. Um, so she, in the end, made the decision that she didn't want to change the tide so she would end the tide yeah um and she would she would rather it stopped completely than 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 lose what she saw as its principles yeah so i guess ultimately that like it was either that or she steps down because if she's not into the new the idea of how it would be afterwards then she's not going to do it yeah absolutely like uh, authentically she's going to just like be trying to shoehorn in politics everywhere and people aren't going to want it like yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seems like ultimately she made the right decision. For yeah, herself. so like rather than abandon her values, she would rather just stop it completely. Um, it wasn't the end of her kind of journalistic career. Yeah. She, um, another of her things that she produced was the LA Yellow Page. I think I think they were called the Yellow Pages, and it was a kind of directory like the normal Yellow Pages, but for LGBTQ friendly businesses. Oh, cool. So like any business that was friendly or supportive or was a queer business they produced a directory of that so people could know where to go to access things yeah which i feel like we could all do with now and would be fantastic um but she was the pioneer as always and um so she started that as well i can't remember if they kind of crossed over at one point but either way she went on to to doing those things and also some kind of radio projects and writing some books and a whole host of other amazing things. Yeah. She actually wrote a really cool book whilst I remember called Kicking the Habit. Okay. She, she used to be a nun. Oh, so okay. prior yeah. to <laughs> So prior to um probably should have said about that earlier, but prior to um like living in LA as a out uh, lesbian activist she was actually a nun. I mean, I have convent. considered becoming a nun instead of having to come out. That was yep. a plan of mine. But like, so, yeah, 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 she actually did become a nun. Yeah, um, and in the end, did leave the convent um, as she kind of found her yeah. her true kind of calling, which was you know sort of this activism. Um, but yeah, so she was actually a nun for a while. So she she did write this book called Kick in the Habit, which I think is pretty iconic. That's very um, good. It does sound a bit like the next iteration in the Sister Act. So Sister yes. Act and the Sister Act back in the habit and then Kicking the yeah. Habit could be the next one after everything goes off the rails and then, yeah. Mm. Anyway, that's that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess Jean Cordova as a whole, her she was the main um figurehead of the tide Mm. she was a really iconic individual being a nun and then going on to become an activist and doing such amazing stuff um so she she really was the reason the tide existed throughout all of those years and a lot of the interviewees that I spoke to really shared that kind of understanding of her um some of them spoke really passionately about how she kind of 
brought life to the tide and also to them and mm. how she inspired them and how she was just this figure of a ball of energy and an amazing woman. Oh my God. Um, I think at times she could be really domineering and I think she was a really controversial character. Um, she sounds like um, ideal CEO material. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And um, I think she was, you know, a bit of a bulldozer at times, but I think yeah. without her, the tide probably would not have... Um, Kind of it had sounds the vision like, yeah. it did. It sounds um, like it wouldn't have been what it was without her. Like it would have been obviously there were other publications, so it wasn't like there would be nothing, but she made it the iconic thing that it was. And I imagine was it her idea to have the big conference too? I, I, I don't know that it was solely her idea. Yeah. I think there was a lot of women's groups, um, particularly feminist groups, but also lesbian feminist groups around that similar time, around like the early nineteen seventies hoping to kind of host these things mm. and bring people together. I think that was quite a um, on-trend thing to do. And I think the journals provided the communication outlets to to do that yeah. in a way that they yeah. hadn't really had before. Um, a bit like now you could make a Facebook event, then you could post about your event in your journal. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And the journals were really, really coming to the fore at this point in the early 70s. So I'm not sure it was solely her idea, but yeah. I definitely think she would have been a real force behind actually making yeah. that event happen. Yeah, um, event planning it. is very complex. Yeah. You would need someone like her at the helm. Yeah, definitely. And I think her attention to detail as well. Mm. She'd had a good journalistic career prior to starting The Tide mm -hmm. as well. Despite she, the fact she was pretty young, she, she was quite um, experienced. Mm. So she really wanted it to look professional. And I think that's, that's one of the ways it differs from some of these other journals that I mentioned is that it was so professional. They had proper photographs yeah. in there and they had a really good um, typesetting mm. and really good layout. Good branding and too. Really yeah. good branding. And they had consistency across their editions and they tried to publish regularly so readers yeah. would get used to kind of seeing their things come out. Um, whereas a lot of journals of a similar kind of um, Gutterdyke Collective, for example. For example, yeah, but only produced about three journals. They never had the longevity right. of um, of the tide. Yeah, it um, sounds like a really like a really professional endeavor. Yeah, I think so, and I think that does come across when you read when you look at the editions. So, in doing this research, I actually read every edition they'd ever produced, really? which across ten years was a fairly long uh, period of period of time. One hundred and twenty or something. Yeah, or it was minus it was a, a lot. couple. It was a lot. Yeah, um, Jesus. But did you I read would, them properly or yeah. did you like scan them? Yeah, no, so I read them oh properly because I hadn't fully decided what how the research was going to be based at that point. So I wasn't really looking, well, I was looking for stuff in particular, but um, yeah, no, I read them all. So do you um, have copies or did you use like digitised versions? So this was one of the saddest things actually about the research was I have never actually touched a copy of the magazine, which oh my God, yeah. for a historian is pretty sad because that is sad. the materiality of it does really kind of imbue the whole thing with meaning um, I was gonna say you'd go and, and I'd frame it on the yeah, wall yeah yeah so I would love to and I hope to at some point yes um, be able to but unfortunately our good friend coronavirus um, oh, shit, was yeah. the reason behind all this research in a way um, I wasn't actually meant to be doing this project at all um, I was meant to be doing a project based on some of my undergraduate work um, looking at uh, lesbian community in Chicago actually mm. um, so I'd, I'd done a bit of research around the the feminist bookstore in Chicago and was meant to be focused on that it was meant to be had had loads of interviews set up in Chicago um was meant to be, had my research funding was meant to be traveling out there and then our good friend coronavirus hit oh my God. and um that wasn't possible anymore yeah I probably could have done some of that research online and done it 
in the way that I did this with um, online interviews, but it kind of, I, would, I didn't want to do the same thing in a way that wasn't really true to the original yeah. project. So I kind of reshaped the whole thing. Um, and very luckily for me, one of my best friends, uh, her aunt is a lovely woman called Lynn Ballon. So Lynn um, was Jean Cordova's partner. Um, what, so Jean as... Cordova sadly passed away oh, um, no. in 2015, I think. Um, oh, wow. And so Lynn was super, super supportive of the project and actually enabled me to be able to do it, really. So when I was chatting to Katie about my best friend, about uh, when the when the coronavirus had hit and how I wasn't able to do my project, she was like, oh, well, why don't you speak to Lynn? Um and then I kind of was browsing online archives and found that actually a lot of the print run had been digitized for the tide. So it all kind of fell into place. It was like That's uh, amazing. Amazing circumstances. Yeah. Um, that it all really worked out. And Lynn was, yeah, as I say, very supportive and it enabled me to kind of set up some interviews with people that had worked on the tide. Um so in the end I had a incredible project. Um yes, that's so mainly incredible. by like, you know, happenstance. Um yeah. And the kindness of a lot of interviewees being very willing to kind of sit for a couple of hours with me on Zoom and figure out Zoom technology and do all of those <laughs> things, which were fraught with difficulty. Oh, but, yeah, for all of us. Yeah, but it made for an incredibly interesting project and one that I think is slightly different from a lot of the research that is out there at the moment. Mm, um, that is amazing. So that's the lesbian side. <laughs> that's it's so incredible. I feel like I've learned so much about the just like the history of how lesbians collectively did anything at the time you know and I really want to see a copy of this I think I yeah I'm gonna try and go online and like get a digitized version or like yeah I imagine they're probably hundreds thousands to buy like, yeah I feel like you could get them um I think you probably can but like there are very few archives that have got many yeah so uh the one archives in LA uh, was where Lynn donated a lot of Jean's papers when she passed away yeah um and they still have quite a lot of involvement uh there as well um but that's where the majority of them are housed. Mm. Um, but there are a few in the various archives across the States. Um, but as far as I'm aware, none in the UK. Although I'm sure someone somewhere would yeah. be able to track do you them have, down. Do you have a favourite edition? I do. So one of my favourite editions is uh, when the Lesbian Tide went to a... Or some of the photographers from the Tide went to a protest in New York. And they were protesting at the National History Museum okay. in New York about the lack of diversity within the collections. Okay. Again, something we could still be protesting about uh, now. I mean, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and like the, I think it was particularly the lack of women mm. um, in the collections. And as part of the protest, they took a giant 16-foot paper mache dinosaur called the Saphosaurus. Oh, my God, amazing. That was lavender-coloured for the lavender menace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And um, they took this dinosaur to the National History yes. Museum. Um, and there's some incredible photos on the cover of that magazine. Um, Just of them of parading the around with this big dinosaur. Yeah. That's so So funny. I think that is probably one of my favourite editions. Not necessarily for the content of the articles, but I think for that front cover. Yeah. Pretty iconic. That's so funny. Um, so yeah, I think that is yeah probably one of my favourites. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kate. That was absolutely wonderful. So interesting. And it's always good to like... I just find... It's so, I guess, thrilling, but it's so interesting to find out some history of queer communities and um, because it's so often under the radar. It's good to kind of uncover things again. And I just think this is incredible research that you've done. And I really hope you get to one day touch a copy of The Lesbian Tide. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Uh, I've thank been you. Hannah Bestwick. And Kate, thank you so much for today. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Bye.